my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien War Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And, well, I saw the Rings of Power premiere last night at the fan screening event. And I have thoughts. First of all, I do want to say that there is good reason why a lot of people have been praising the show. That said, there's, in one sense, not a lot that happens in these first two episodes. I'm going to break this review down into three sections. I'm going to give a very, very brief TLDR-type explanation of my thoughts where I give a, just kind of my overall impressions plus talk about my wife's impressions because she went to the premiere with me. Then I'm going to get into a non-spoiler, more detailed review of some of the things that I liked and didn't like that don't have anything to do with the plot per se. Uh, and then I'm going to get into a spoiler section where I really get into, you know, some of the more significant plot elements that might be of interest in terms of either lore breaking, lore consistency, just bad plot development, you know, that, that sort of thing. So that's going to be the structure of this. I do want to remind everybody I have a live stream coming up this weekend on Saturday, September 3rd, and, you know, if you want to be there for that, I'll, you know, there may be people dropping questions in there, so I may put more stuff in there, but now let's talk about the actual show, so the Rings of Power fan screening event covers the first, it's kind of odd, It, it it's kind of two episodes in one, and then at the very end they call it episode one, but there's a credits break in the middle, so, it's <laughs> kind of a weird thing, but my overall impression of the show is that it's pretty good in terms of just being a decent TV show. Uh, it's watchable, enjoyable, the pacing's a little slow to start off, uh, but overall it's enjoyable television, but basically fan fiction. Um... I was talking to my wife on the way home and kind of giving my thoughts after she told me hers. And initially I said a good 75 to 80% of it is just straight up fan fiction. And then I reconsidered my statement and I said actually pretty darn near 100% of it is just straight up fan fiction. Uh, so it's, it's not bad television. But so far, it bears little resemblance to anything that we ever get in Tolkien's actual writings. Uh, what little we do get that bears resemblance to Tolkien's writings, beyond merely the names, places, and things like that, is mostly what little Galadriel tells us in kind of a prologue section about Valinor in the First Age. And even there, there's issues. So, there's... You know, it's enjoyable television, mostly pretty good, but with a few problems. Uh, my wife's impression was very similar. She said that, you know, she wouldn't mind watching another episode, but that she wasn't just completely hooked on anything either. She also thought the pacing was a bit slow. Um, she, you know, we both had a few problems that I'll get into a little bit later with some specifics, but overall... She thought that it was, you know, watchable and enjoyable. But one of the things that she also mentioned was that it's very female-centric. 
uh, a lot of the story in the first two episodes revolves around Galadriel and Eleanor Brandyfoot, or Nori, as she's called. There's also side plots with Elrond and Arondir, plus the human that he's in love with named Bronwyn, but those plots are a little less the focus, at least in these early in the early going, and even in the Arondir Bronwyn plot, Bronwyn is about as the much the focus as Arondir is, and with Elrond, he's kind of mixed in with Galadriel a little bit in the beginning, and then kind of goes off and focuses on his own thing. So she thought it was really heavily female focused in the early going. Uh, and one of just incidentally, one of the other things that she mentioned about uh, Eleanor Brandyfoot was the actress seems very much like Elijah Wood, and not Frodo Elijah Wood. In fact, there's a couple of points where I noticed even that in certain light and in cert- at certain angles, she looks a heck of a lot like Elijah Wood. Um, and both of us thought that that was probably not mere coincidence. Like it goes down to mannerisms and stuff like that. But at any rate, both of us thought it was at least enjoyable, not perfect, but, you know, worth continuing on with in terms of just being decent television. And surprisingly, maybe to some of you, it wasn't like, you know, woke SJW garbage or whatever you want to call it. I know a ton of people have been criticizing the show in advance as going to be woke SJW garbage. Yes, there is a lot of casting in this show that is, you know, either people of color or, you know, various other things that don't really seem to fit with the the lore as it's described in Tolkien's actual writings. There's also a lot of casting that just doesn't make any obvious sense in terms of just the world building within the story itself because down to family relationships and things like that, it seems like there are a lot of families where parent and child don't have even the same race. And it's not impossible for that to happen if, you know, you have, say, a Caucasian marry, you know, somebody who's not a Caucasian, and then the kid just turns out looking straight Caucasian. I mean, that can happen, but it's a little odd that you don't see, you know, and you know, and a people of color parent with a white child, and the white child just doesn't look at all mixed race at all. Um, so there's definitely a lot of casting in that way, which makes it seem like they're just colorblind ca- casting in the way that back in my video where I kind of talked about this controversy, you know, you see that in a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, like for example. Much Ado About Nothing, Denzel Washington plays the prince, and he's the brother of Keanu Reeves' character. It's like, he's obviously not Keanu Reeves' brother. You know, in, in the way that in Peter Jackson's trilogy, Faramir and Boromir look close enough that they could be related. You know, they don't look exactly like brothers, but they look close enough. Here, they don't seem to have cared about that. But on the other hand... So far, there doesn't seem to be any serious indication that they're just pushing some kind of woke agenda with the way that they've done the casting. I will have a slight caveat to that in my next section, but 
uh, that's, you know, kind of the overall thoughts that both of us had is that, you know, there's nothing obviously agenda-driven about the show, and part of that is just because of the way the casting is done. It seems like they're just, they just cast whoever they cast, and they put him in whatever role without specifically designing it for the way the person ought to look, really, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything beyond that, seemingly. Now, that's not to say that Amazon didn't specifically hire a bunch of people with the specific intent of having a diverse cast, but it's, it, you know, whether it goes beyond that, so far it doesn't look like it does. So that's kind of the overall thoughts. Uh, now, let me get into some more specifics in terms of what I liked and didn't like about the show. Start with acting. Acting, I thought, for the most part, was okay. Nothing to write home about. Nothing really terrible. Um, there were people who did better better than others. Elrond, I thought, was one of the better acted characters. Um, there's plenty of characters that I thought could have done better. I will say Arondir is one of my least favorite in terms of acting because he always just seems to have the same expression and just, he doesn't have a lot of personality. Maybe that's intentional because of the way he's written, but at this point it just comes off like he's just, the actor's not giving much to the role. Um, Elrond, like I said, is pretty good. Galadriel was kind of middle of the road. Uh, Nori Brandyfoot, like, she's doing a pretty good job, but I feel like she's a young person who's, in some ways, trying too hard, and if that makes sense, like, you can tell that she's really putting the effort in, but sometimes it doesn't quite seem to work, and there's some other characters like that, some of the younger actors, where they're doing a pretty good job, but they, you kind of get the idea they don't have quite the experience to really just sell it completely, um, and Connected to the acting thing, in terms of character development, one of the things that I don't like about the show so far is there are so many characters and various plot threads that it's hard to get connected with any of them. And a good example of this is Lenny Henry's character, Sir Lenny Henry's character, uh, Sadok Burroughs. He's a really good example of this because he, like some of the other characters, we only hear his name one time out of two hours of television, and we get maybe three lines out of him. Nori, on the other hand, gets a lot more screen time and does a lot more stuff. So, another example would be Bronwyn. We see her a lot in the show, but again, we only get her name one time, and it's there's a lot of stuff like that where following a character or, you know, getting connected to them. You want to know their name. You want to get more time with them. But, you know, we're already up to a whole bunch of names with several different plot threads, and I think it gets a little hard to keep up, especially when the pacing in these early two episodes is a little bit slow, and therefore they don't fit as much into it as they might. There's several scenes where it seems like they kind of just linger on a facial expression, or they do something like that, and it slows the pace down where it might have made more sense to introduce maybe just two plot threads 
and then over time add some more. But it seems like they're trying to throw everything in at once and then, you know, just build them all at the same time at roughly the same pace. And eventually this is probably going to work out because they're probably all going to connect in some kind of way. There's already hints in that direction. But at the early stage we're at, eh, it's it's a little bit hard to get into in that regard. Not so hard that it's, you know, complete turnoff. Like I said, overall, it was very watchable as just television. But it it's a weakness of the early episodes. So in terms of set design props and that sort of thing, most of the sets and the visuals and that sort of thing were really good. I will say that the elven cities, the, you know, the inside of Khazad-dûm that we get to see, there's a lot of really good, beautiful scenery and that sort of thing. Uh, props, hit or miss, and one of the complaints that a lot of people had early on from the stuff that we got to see was, a lot of the costumes, the armor and stuff look cheap. That has not changed. Uh, that still remains true. Even seeing it live on television, a lot of the stuff seems cheap. In fact, I will say that Gilgalad's outfit in the early going seems cheaper in the actual show than in the promotional materials. Like, looking at it, it was just like, man, that just does not look good. Um, and then there's this... You know, we've all seen the image of Galadriel getting crowned by Gil- by Gilgalad, and they're in this ceremony, and we see the armor. We see that armor a lot more up close in the show, and man, the armor does not look good. That being said, the armor that they're wearing is different than the armor that they seem to wear in other places, and so it may just be purely ceremonial armor. And in that regard, maybe we can give that one a pass. Uh, but there's... There's a lot of cases where the props and things, especially the outfits, seem cheap. But there are some props that, and even some of the outfits and whatnot, that seem really nice. So Elrond's costume is probably kind of middle of the road. Gilgalad's is bleh. Uh, but then you've got, like, Durin, his outfit is is perfectly fine. I mean, you can't see half of it because his beard's covering it up, but it looks it looks perfectly fine. Uh and a lot of the outfits for the characters in the Southlands, where Orondir is, you know, they're perfectly fine, but they're also nothing fancy. They're just, like, clothes for really poor medieval village-type people. So it's, you know, it's not really hard to do anything. Uh, the Harfoots, they're all constantly wearing plant matter, I guess, in order to kind of blend in, which some of it works, some of it just seems a little silly, but, you know, I mean, whatever. I, I'm still not exactly sure how that's going to, you know, turn me on or off over time. Because there's just some things about their outfits that are, that are a little weird. But speaking of things that are a little weird, the humor in some of the scenes is... Uh, let's Let's say there's a varied effect here as well. The dwarves, we see a little bit of the dwarves besides Prince Durin. And unfortunately, it seems like they took Peter Jackson's Gimli with John Rhys Davis, took his most obnoxious qualities and traits, stepped it up a notch or two, and made that 
virtually all the dwarves in Khazad Doom. Fortunately, there's not much of that in the show because we spend most of our time with just Durin. But the dwarves seem kind of comic reliefy, and I don't like that. I didn't like it with Gimli. Now, that's not to say that it won't make you laugh in some instances, but it's that's not how Tolkien's dwarves are supposed to be. Similar with the Harfoots, there's more humor with the Harfoots, but again, it seems more like the kind of humor that you would find in a modern TV show and less the kind of humor that you would get from Tolkien's actual writings. Just silly things that are designed to get cheap laughs, and some of them are pretty decent laughs, but it's, again, might be good television, but not great Tolkien. You don't get a whole lot of humor outside the context of the dwarves and the Harfoots, and I really hope this is not going to become a trend where almost all the humor is just coming at the expense of Harfoots and dwarves, and then everybody else is just really dead serious all the time. I hope they manage to do some better writing with the the humor as well and, and step it up a little bit and make it not, you know, ba-dump-ching. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it to be that the whole way through. The final general point before I get into spoilers, and that's the writing and the storytelling. I've already mentioned, of course, that the pacing was a bit slow. The writing, as a general rule, was pretty good. There were a few points, and one in particular, although I don't remember the exact line, where I thought, man, y'all could have done better than that. That's bad writing. And bad writing not in the sense that it's, you know, just written really poorly, but in a, in a way that does not sound like Tolkien at all. Most of the language used is fine for a modern audience being introduced to Tolkien through a television show. It's mostly not, you know, like what you would read on the page, but it's, you know, it's not any worse than what Peter Jackson put in his movies. And there was, as I mentioned, a few lines, though, where I thought, Ah, that's just too... Uh. And the one line that really stood out to me, there were several word choices that the way it came across to me was nobody prior to maybe 1990 would have said anything like that. And it it came down to the word choices and whatnot, and it's like the kind of things that you might expect to come out of you know, a corporate bureaucracy or something, and it's just like, ah, that's so unpoetic. There's no possible way Tolkien would have ever set that to paper. Um, like I said, most of it was not like that, but there were a few instances where the writing was just like, ew, that's not, that's, that, you know, it takes you out of the story when you get a line delivered that nobody in anything like a medieval setting would ever spout. And so there was just a couple of those where it was like, ah, man, that's bad. Another thing that I will say in terms of the writing and storytelling, beyond what I've already kind of mentioned about slow pacing and whatnot, they're not very good at logical coherence in scenes. There are a couple of points where, you know, the, the events that transpire are set up in a way that is meant to lead to a particular thing for the audience, but the way it's done 
it doesn't have a natural flow. And I'll talk a little bit about this when I get into the spoiler section. But to me, that's another weakness. Like, if you can't write a scene such that the characters are doing natural things in a natural way that responds to the actual circumstances that they're in to get the result you want, your writing is a little subpar. And that, that showed in a couple of spots. A final note on the writing, and this isn't really the writing so much, but it, it, it kind of is. The fight scenes, and there aren't many of them in these first two episodes, but there are a couple, were not done well. And, you know, the, the one scene that a lot of people were criticizing where Galadriel leaps off of somebody's sword and attacks a troll, that happens in the first episode. Um, that fight scene was not done super well. In my opinion, it was really kind of sloppily edited and sloppily choreographed because you got, you know, certain characters basically not doing anything and then Galadriel doing more or less all the heavy lifting in that fight. And it's just the way it was shot makes it kind of obvious that most of the characters were not doing much of anything. And it's done so that Galadriel gets to be the hero of the scene, but they make it so extreme that she does practically everything useful in that fight, and the rest of them we don't even hardly see doing anything useful to fight the troll. So it's just like, you could have shot it better than that. And in ways that were... It's like, you can't... There's a lot of fight scene problems in a lot of movies where you have multiple attackers against one defender and several attackers basically do nothing until it's their turn. That's kind of the feeling you get in some of these fight scenes, including this one with Galadriel. And the other one, too, there's another one that happens, which I'll get into more later, but it, it's kind of the same thing where you know, one person has their turn, and then they kind of get out of the fight for whatever reason, another person takes their turn, and it's, you never get, you know, just a con consistent, smooth action throughout. It's broken up in a way to achieve a certain result, and not done in a way that seems like a natural fight scene. So, the only two fight scenes that have come up so far were like that. And I hope they improve that over time because one of the things that I've gotten more interested in over the years is that kind of stuff because I watch several channels, Shadowversity, Scala Gladiatoria, uh, and some others where they analyze fight scenes and they've pointed these kinds of things out. And so I've gotten to the point where I'm kind of a snob because I'll watch these things and I'll see it over and over again. And I'm just like, oh man, that's terrible. And I mean, these weren't the worst ever I'm not saying that, but they definitely could have been improved significantly. So, those are kind of my overall thoughts. Now I'm going to get into some spoilers and get into plot elements that are important and whatnot, but I don't want to spend like a whole long time getting into the whole plot and breaking it down bit by bit. If you want to watch the show, you can get that. I'm not going to detail the entire plot. I'm going to give kind of an overview, and get into a few specific plot elements that are worth noting to give an idea of how things go. So there's 
basically four major plot threads. We have Galadriel's plot thread, we have Elrond's plot thread, we have Arondir and Bronwyn's plot thread, and then we have the Harfoots, mainly in the form of Nori Brandyfoot. Galadriel's plot thread starts us off, and she gives us kind of a, a bit of background in terms of the First Age, time in Valinor, and all the stuff that happened before the Second Age even kicks off. Now, that gives me a... This is one where I'm going to dwell a little bit because there were issues that I had with this because in the really early stages we see Galadriel as a child in Valinor and there's this scene where she builds a paper boat. Well, maybe it's not paper, but it it looks like a you know paper origami kind of style boat. She puts it in the water and there's this one particular other elf who's you know, making fun of it, saying, you know it'll never float, blah, blah, blah. And then when it does float, he ends up chucking a rock at it to sink it, and he said, I told you it wouldn't float. It's like, the elves in Valinor were not total brats. (laughs) What little information we get from Tolkien on the elves living in Valinor is that they were pretty much all in total bliss, with the exception maybe of Feanor. Uh, And that's kind of a unique case. But anyway, she ends up having this conversation with Finrod after the fact. And he mentions weirdly that, you know, I won't always be here to tell you right from wrong. And it's like, what do you mean you won't always be there? At that stage, there's like no hint that any of them are ever going to die. Why would he say that? And Galadriel even says in her voiceover, we didn't even have a word for death at that point. Okay, then why? This doesn't make sense. So again, that that's an example of the writing not being completely coherent, in my opinion. We do get to see the trees. We get to see the trees dying. We don't get to see Ungoliant or Morgoth, although we see kind of a shadow that's supposed to kind of represent him a little bit. And then she gets into the Wars of the First Age um, and talks about Morgoth's servant, Sauron, and how he, you know, is kind of the one of the people that does a lot of the stuff with the orcs. And she says her brother, and by the way, I don't think it ever actually says his name, but it's supposed to be Finrod, uh, hunted Sauron during the First Age. But Sauron found him first, and he died. It's not really clear exactly. We see Finrod in that big, huge battle scene that we've seen in the previews and stuff. It's not clear that he died in there, and in fact, he almost certainly probably didn't, because one of the things that she mentions is that Sauron left a mark on him, which... Not even our wisest knew what it meant. It's like, does it have to mean something? It's the same, it's like a, kind of like a trident shape. It's kind of a half circle with a a line going through it. Some people have speculated that that's Mordor. Some people have speculated other things, but we don't know what it means yet. But anyway, Sauron found him first. It's not clear at all in what way Fenrod died, so it's not exactly lore-breaking uh, except for the fact that she gets to look, actually see his dead body. That wouldn't have happened in the actual Silmarillion. Uh, but it does seem weird that she would say that he you know, was searching for Sauron. It's like, why would you... First of all, Sauron is extremely powerful, much more powerful than an elf. You wouldn't just go out looking for the guy, especially if you can't even you know, beat his boss anyway. But regardless of all that... That sets us up for the intro scene where Galadriel has taken up his task of finding Sauron. 
And the impression we get from her voiceover is that after the war with Morgoth ended, a lot of elves stayed behind to kind of try to clean up the remnants of Morgoth's, you know, minions and whatnot, and Sauron was one of them, but he hasn't been seen for who knows how long. And we even get references to the fact that orcs haven't been seen in forever. And there's this tension in her group because she's trying to find Sauron and they want to turn back thinking it's all kind of pointless. They're searching for some fortress on a map far in the north that nobody's ever found before. Somehow they find it in the middle of a snowstorm in the dark and they manage to wander their way into it or right up to it. And then they go in and this is where they have the fight scene with the troll but also they find the same symbol that was on Finron's body on an anvil. And Galadriel is talking about how this is where the orcs gathered after, you know, Morgoth's defeat or whatever, and she says that the mark was left there for, you know, orcs to follow. And it's like, how does she know all this stuff? Is she just assuming it? And it's not clear if this is just part of the characterization of Galadriel, that she's obsessed and therefore she sees everything in a certain way, or if she's actually supposed to be knowledgeable enough to know this stuff and everybody else is just missing it. But, I mean, logically, the fact that that symbol is there on an anvil tells us nothing about when it was put there, why it was put there, or anything. So, it makes Galadriel seem more kind of obsessed and with blinders on than anything else. I don't know if that's what they're going for. Anyway, they have the the troll fight. All the other people with her basically say we're not going any further and there's already been implications that she's not she's exceeded kind of her mandate which was given by apparently Gilgalad as to how far to go or what to do and whatever but you know she went further than she was supposed to but she found this fortress but is forced to go back because everybody else is like we're not going any further uh here I will say all these elves are carrying those swords with those absolutely gigantic handles that look stupid. Like, you don't have handles that long. Their swords are actually not super long, so why would you need the handle to be that long? It's just weird. Anyway, Galadriel goes back with all these other guys, and they basically get rewarded by Gilgalad, and apparently part of their reward is they get to sail into the West, which is, to me, really strange. Like, you either have the option to sail into the West or you don't because you were too much of a renegade, and that's that, as far as the lore is concerned. Gilgala doesn't have the power or the the authority to grant the right of people to sail into the West, and he doesn't have the right to stop them. So this particular element I thought was a little... Eh. One other thing I didn't like about this is we see Elrond in kind of an early scene writing something, and he's trying to get the right words down or whatever, and it turns out that this is the speech that Gilgalad gives to all these elves who have been out on this mission in praising them and rewarding them. And I also thought that was really bad. It's like Gilgalad, the high king of the Noldor, can't write his own speech and has to have Elrond do it? I don't I do not like their characterization of Gilgalad thus far thus far. Let me say that. Um and then Galadriel is, of course, not really happy about the idea of sailing off into the West because she still thinks Sauron is out there and that the the emblem that she found is proof of that, which it isn't, but whatever. 
somehow she seems to know the age of it. How you could know that? Don't know. Nobody ever found that fortress before, so there's no way to tell how long it had been there, but she is certain. How is she certain? It's, again, it just makes her seem obsessive. Anyway, Elrond tries to convince her to, to do it, to go into the West. Like, you know, your, your quest for revenge and your hurt and all this stuff is only going to be healed if you go to Valinor. That's where it'll be healed. So she eventually does get on the boat, but then as they're sailing into the West and approaching, I guess, where the straight road begins and the waters of Arda end, they, you know, there's this blinding light and then she just decides to get off the boat and stay in Middle Earth because she just can't bring herself to give up on the idea that Sauron's out there and it's her job to find him. So she ends up in the water and eventually swims and finds this group of humans who have been shipwrecked, but they're, they have kind of a makeshift raft. And already by this point, I'm skipping a lot of the other plot elements because I'm going to come back to them and handle them individually. But we've already gotten several instances of indications that elves and men don't get along all that well. They have racial tensions. And this pops up here in this scene. Uh, how, this is where Hallbrand comes in, but there's also several other characters. And we find out that they've been shipwrecked by this sea monster, which, I mean, sea monsters, that's, as far as I know, not even a thing in Tolkien in this way, but nevertheless, we have one. And the sea monster finds them. They blame her and kick her off, but then she ends up kind of off on her own. The fog covers up the makeshift raft, and the next thing you know, Hallbrand's coming out on, like, a smaller portion of it, and we don't know what happened to the other ones. And they end up on this raft together, and they eventually, by the end of the second episode, they go through a storm, they almost die, and at the end of the second episode, Galadriel kind of wakes up after this storm and sees a man on a ship with the sun behind him. And this is probably going to be Elendil or Isildur or somebody. And that's how we're going to get introduced to Numenor. Galadriel's story arc thus far is basically entirely fan fiction. I mean, that, that's the only way to put it. One thing I will say about her story, and particularly with Hallbrand, during the storm, she kind of ties herself to the makeshift mast on the, the raft. And then... I think it's lightning strikes it or something, but it becomes detached and she ends up in the water and apparently it's attached to an anchor or something because it's getting dragged down and Hallbrand is just kind of sitting there watching it and realizes the rope that was attached to it is feeding off the raft and he just sits there and watches it until it's gone and it's feeding pretty fast and we see Galadriel underwater unconscious still tied to it so she's being dragged down by whatever it is that's heavy attached to it. And then we, you know, the rope completely disappears off the raft. Hallbrand is still there, not doing anything, which again is like, why? But then we skip down to see Galadriel again, and then we see Hallbrand pulling himself down the rope so as to rescue her. And this is one of those where it's just completely unrealistic and not well done, because there was enough rope there and enough time to show that it was sinking pretty fast and that it had sunk a fairly good distance and the rope was gone before Hallbrand could have possibly jumped in the water 
which means he would have had to have swum down fast to catch up with the rope, and then he would have had to have gone a fairly good way to get to or even beyond that, which means that thing would have sunk a long way, and he would have had to untire even when he got down there, which he does with her dagger, not, you know, so he could have done it relatively quickly, but they would have been so far down, there's probably no way they could have made it without, you know, drowning, and certainly not without, you know, probably getting the bins on the way back up. So that was just one of those scenes where it's like, ah, you didn't have to, you went for total drama at the expense of realism, and it didn't work that well. Anyway, that's kind of Galadriel's story thus far in a nutshell. There's a lot of detail and stuff I'm leaving out, but that's kind of where it is. Elrond's starts off as part of Galadriel's story, and his whole thing is he is the Herald of Gilgalad, and apparently he's not an elven lord because he gets told very early on that he's not invited to the next council meeting because it's elf lords only, which is like... Okay, and then we get another line later with Gilgalad talking to him, saying something about those who lead and those who aspire to do so, clearly meaning Elrond. It's like, there's this ambitious politician thing that was brought up. Apparently Elrond is kind of like climbing the ranks, but right now he's considered not an elf lord, which doesn't make any sense given Elrond's heritage. I mean, he's like, he's the grandson of a king and the great-grandson of another king, and I, yeah, it's just, I don't know where they're going with this, but I don't particularly like the direction of it. At any rate, the early stages are him mostly interacting with Galadriel, kind of telling her that, you know, you kind of overstepped your mandate there, and Gilgalad's not super happy about it. I would recommend kind of backing off of this until he's calmed down. Um, and after Galadriel is gone, Gilgalad tells him, you know, we've got, something going on with Celebrimbor down in Eregion, and I want you to go help him out, and the Celebrimbor actually comes to Linden, and they end up going off to uh, Eregion to discuss whatever it is. Right after this scene, Gilgalad was talking to Elrond about how the darkness that Galadriel is afraid is still out there he intimates that he does, in fact, believe that it's still out there, but he says something like, you know, the wind that seeks to put it out might also, you know, make it burn more, meaning Galadriel might make things worse. And then after Elrond leaves, a leaf fall down, falls down from a tree, and he turns it over, and there's a bunch of black on it. So we now get the impression that Gilgalad is not just stupid or, or trying to ignore evidence, it's like he knows that there's something going on, but he thinks that Galadriel is going to be a problem rather than a help for whatever reason. We don't get enough of anything with Gilgalad to really get an idea of his motivations, and this is another one of those points about, you know, some of the characters, we just don't get enough of them to really get invested in them or really understand them. We don't understand Gilgalad's motivations here, and we don't get any idea that he's particularly a likable person either. His characterization thus far is kind of domineering and not particularly nice. You get the impression that he's just, he wants it done his way and he's going to get it done his way and nobody better buck up. <laughs> so I don't like the way that Gilgalad's been portrayed so far, but there hasn't been a lot of it. At any rate, Elrond goes to Eregion with Celebrimbor and Celebrimbor says he wants to, you know, 
do something that really has a big impact on the world, kind of like Feanor did with the Silmarils. And they give this story about how Morgoth had the Silmarils that I wasn't really too keen on. I mean, there's there's several things where they give like several stories or asides or little things where it seems like they're trying to be really smart with the writing, but it doesn't work as well as I think they wanted it to. And also it doesn't match up with the lore. I'm not going to get into huge amounts of detail on that, but Celebrimbor basically tells him, you know, I, I have this ambition to do something really important. And Elrond's, what do you want to make? And he's like, well, what I want to make is like way out on the horizon. What I need now is to build this tower that can hold a forge that would, you know, be greater than any other forge we've ever built before, but we don't have the manpower for it. And so Elrond's like, well, how are you willing to consider getting a workforce outside our race? And basically what it comes down to is he's friends with Durin the Fourth, and he says, you know, I can, you know, get you in good with him and maybe get some dwarves to help on this project. Why you would need the dwarves to help on this project, I'm not exactly sure why that would be. And this is another flaw in the writing. We have just gotten past all this stuff where we have indicated that Gilgalad is, you know, as the High King has basically said, okay, we're done with all the warring, that's all done now, we can all focus on peace and do our own thing and whatever. So it's like there ought to be now plenty of manpower freed up among the elves to do whatever they want. Nevertheless, they don't, I mean, out of an entire kingdom of Linden, plus Eregion, they can't get people to build a tower? Eregion itself is already a huge city. Linden is a big city. Like, how was all this stuff built? Did the elves just become lazy? <laughs> so it's another one of those things where the writing is taking us to a direction and just doesn't know how to get there in a really natural way. At any rate, they show up to the doors of Khazad-dûm and Elrond basically asks for an audience with Durin and the dwarf guard there just says, no. And Elrond's like, mm, that's kind of weird. And he tries to, he says, can you let Prince Durin know that his friend, Lord Elrond, no, the decision's already been made. So then he says, I invoke the right of some dwarvish thing, and they open the doors. And it turns out what he's invoking is the right to a contest of endurance. And basically he ends up going in, and we see, you know, Khazad-dûm. And this is, you know, Khazad-dûm is really nice. I mean, they, they made it look really cool. Although I will say, I think they put way too much greenery in it. Uh, but anyway, they get in there and they have this contest and Durin comes in and he's acting like he just really doesn't like Elrond at all. And of course, this whole time you're wondering if they're such good friends, why is he so mad? They have the contest of endurance, which is basically taking a hammer and smashing rocks. And they go and they go and they go and they go and they go. And, they go. and then finally Elrond breaks his hammer and he's about to, he gets a new one, and he's about to swing it, and he's just like, uh, never mind, and he puts it down. And so the terms of the contest were, if Elrond loses, then he's banished from Dwarven lands forever, and if he's successful, then he gets to, you know, basically present whatever to Durin. So Durin escorts him out, basically, and Elrond uses the opportunity, well, Elrond kind of asks him to escort him out so that he has the opportunity to you know, kind of figure out why Durin is so hostile. Durin apparently is hostile because Elrond has been away for a significant amount of time and missed his wedding, the birth of his kids, and all this other stuff. And he says, you know, those years may be like a blink of an eye to an elf, but for me, I've lived a life in those years. Which 
he says he's known Elrond for 50 years, and based on what we know from Tolkien's writings, dwarves can live 250, 300 years. So, no, he hasn't lived a life in those years. I hate to break it to you. Um, but this is where we see them trying to give the sense of the difference between the immortal and the mortal races. And to me, it was a little clunky. I, I didn't particularly like it. I mean, it's like Durin and Elrond are such great friends that Durin is super upset that he wasn't there for his wedding, and Elrond, how did Elrond get to be such good friends with him that that would be a thing, but not visit him in the last, I don't know how many decades? Again, writing here seems like it's we're trying to get to a specific place, and we're just going to get there as lazy as possible. We're not really going to make it natural. At any rate, Elrond works his diplomatic magic, and you know, get gives him an apology and then works a way to apologize to his wife, Disa. And this leads to Disa inviting him to dinner and therefore, you know, it, it all patches over ultimately. Uh, we find out that he's also given a sapling of a tree from Linden to Durin, which he's planted and cared for as if, you know, as Disa puts it, as their third child. <laughs> Uh, so it's, Durin clearly still cares for Elrond and he's just kind of putting on this face. So again, it's like, it's a little bit not great in terms of the writing, but anyway, so Elrond does finally get to make the proposal to Durin. Durin takes it to his father, who is Durin the third, apparently. And Durin the third is really skeptical. He thinks that it's no accident that there's an elf here at this particular time because they're trying to find out their secret. And we don't know what that secret is, but they get a chest and open it, and from the back you can see a whitish glimmer coming from it. So is it Mithril? I bet it probably is. Is it something else? Who knows? But we don't really know what it is at this stage. But that's kind of where Elrond's Thing kind of runs out at by the end of this. The other two major plot lines are Arondirs and the Harfoots. And the Harfoots, there's not really a whole lot of plot there. The only thing we really get is that they're a wandering people. They kind of migrate and they hide out from the big people pretty much all the time and don't really interact with them. And they're if anything, even more parochial and less adventurous than the hobbits that we meet in the Third Age. But Nori Brandyfoot, of course, is the one who is very much not into following the rules. So she is kind of a proto-Took or Brandybuck in that way, which Brandyfoot, Brandybuck, whatever. So she does all these adventurous type things. She gets herself almost into trouble, almost runs into a warg with a bunch of other Harfoot kids, but manages not to actually do that. She kind of sees it, and they go back before anything happens. But most of the plot really about this is The Stranger, and this is Meteor Man. So about halfway through maybe the Harfoot plot, and this is the end of the first episode, the meteor comes, and it goes kabam right outside where the Harfoots are camped. And for some reason, Nori is the only one to go look at it. And then her friend Poppy comes up a little bit later. But none of the other Harfoots seem to have been remotely interested in checking it out at all. And so none of them know what happens. Only Nori and Poppy know anything about it. 
Not that they know the other people know that there was a thing that fell, but they never go and look at it. They never check it out. Never do anything. Anyway, she comes up on it, and there's the stranger who is just kind of lying there on this glowing meteorite or whatever it is in a crater, and there's fire everywhere. And then at some point, she accidentally falls down into the crater, and the pieces of the meteorite are not hot. It set everything on fire. But it's not hot. Okay, fine. She touches the stranger's hand and he wakes up and goes, and then like weird things happen with the rocks and all this. And then all the fire kind of gets sucked up into him, I guess. And then he passes out and the fire all comes back out. So whoever the stranger is seems to be connected with fire some way or another. They end up taking him to some spot where they have like a kind of a makeshift lean-to under a tree. Come back the next morning and he's awake like drawing on a rock with another rock and it's not clear what he's doing but he seems to be writing runes. She's trying to figure out who he is and whatnot. Uh, He doesn't seem to have any language at all. Maybe he does. He whispers some things occasionally where... It's kind of under his breath, and you can't tell if he's using actual words, but whenever she tries to communicate with him, he acts like a baby learning words for the first time. He's trying to imitate her, but doesn't really know what's going on. He tries to draw something on the ground at one point to try to give her an idea of, in answer to the question, where did you come from? It's not clear what he's trying to do, though. Um, And then later on, she comes back at night after her dad is either broken his ankle or twisted it horribly and basically says they're going to have to leave soon and she's sorry that she she wanted to help him but she can't and then he looks at him and they're carrying these lanterns which are full of fireflies and he's like Uh, and incidentally there was a point too where he got really when she came back when he first woke up he did another one of those things and a bunch of wind like really pushed the trees or whatever it's like What's going on? It's really not clear. But anyway, at the this last scene we get with him, he's got the he sees the lanterns and it kind of seems to make him a little bit perturbed in some way. And they're like, it's just a lantern. We use fireflies, and then a bunch of the fireflies escape, and he kind of magically makes them form constellations or stars. And Nori and Poppy kind of figure this out, like, he's doing stars, but I've never seen those stars before. And so it's not really clear what what's going on here. I didn't recognize it as a constellation in our world, which is maybe a little weird. I mean, I don't know my constellations that well, but if it's not a constellation that we would have in our world, it wouldn't have been in his world either, because Middle Earth has the same constellations we do, people. Anyway, he does this, and then... He kind of faints like he's, you know, used as much energy as he's got. And then the fireflies start dropping dead. And and so there's elements about the stranger that seem kind of sinister, but also like, is he really sinister or is it just, I mean, we don't know anything about him yet. So it's kind of weird. And that's kind of the last thing we get with that plot point. I mean, the rest of it is mostly just focused around Nori being different than every other Harfoot. Um, and then the final major plot thread that we follow, of course, is Arondir with Bronwyn. 
Arondir is one of the elves who are tasked with kind of monitoring this group of men in the Southlands. And it's not clear if they're in Mordor or if they're near Mordor or where exactly they are. But uh, in the very early going, we see him and another elf arrive. They just kind of check on things. He, he overhears one of the people talking about poison. And he's like, what poison? And he's like, oh, it's just poison grass or whatever out somewhere in the east. And don't really make anything of it. And he ends up going outside and talking to Bronwyn at the well. And apparently, you know, they're trying to keep this kind of hush-hush. Um, they have a conversation, which... Arondir, as I mentioned earlier, is not one of my favorite actors. His his line delivery is not, to me, all that impressive. But he ends up leaving with the other elf, and the other elf is like, you know, I know what you're doing here. What do you think is going to happen if the Watch Warden finds out what you're doing here? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and he's, Anyway, he, he tries to play off like nothing is happening. They go back to the Watchtower, and the Watch Warden apparently has news that the Gilgalad has basically declared that the times of war are over and it's peace. Now, somewhere around here, I want to say, there was a mention of Morgoth's been defeated for an age. So, you get the impression, at the end of the first age, Morgoth defeated, and now we're like well into the second age. And it's been a long, long time. But, apparently, the Watch Warden thinks that all of these humans who are still living here still have the darkness of you know, their service to Morgoth in their veins. It's like, that's not very much of an elf-like way to think, and it's not a very Tolkienian way to think. There were plenty of elves, don't get me wrong, in his stories that were kind of racist. You had, you know, like, say, Caranthir, and you had Thingol that were not too keen on humans or dwarves. But the idea that you would have something tainting you generations and generations after would all of the other stuff that happened, it's just so, I don't like it. I really don't like the way that that's going. So anyway, they're planning all to just uproot and leave. And so Arondir kind of sneaks off and goes back to visit Bronwyn one more time because he's going to be leaving forever and, you know, he likes her. And her son, apparently, is Theo, and Theo, like many of the other people in the town, has a really significant dislike for elves, and that comes up in Arondir's initial visit, too. Uh, but, so, he shows up, Bronwyn goes out to talk to him, and he, you know, she says, what What do you have to say to me, or whatever, and he says, I've already said it a hundred ways over you know, other, every way there is other than with words. And he's, of course, he's trying to tell her he loves her. Uh, but then Theo says, Mom, there's some man here for you. And they go around. Well, she goes back through the house on the other side. And this guy has a cow that he's like, do you heal animals too? Because she's the local healer. And they're trying. she's kind of looking at the cow, trying to figure out what's wrong with it. There's no fever. There's no nothing. Um, and a rondier comes around the house while this is going on and the guy kind of looks at him like, what are you doing here? Uh, but anyway, the upshot of it is we find out that the cow wandered east some time ago, which remember was where the poison grass was. And he said it might've gone as far as this other village. And a run deer actually goes down to the, the utter and squeezes it and out comes 
not milk. It's like this dark, thick... So something's really wrong with the cow. So Arondir decides he's going to go east to this village and see if he can figure out what in the world is going on. And Bronwyn decides to go with him. While they're gone, Theo and this other kid who almost got in a fight with with uh, Arondir go into this barn and Theo shows him something he discovered under the floorboards and he pulls it out and it's this black sword with Sauron's symbol on the sword. And he looks at it at one point when he's alone and it it's like it flames up and he's kind of entranced by it and it's like, okay, this is having like ring-like qualities from Peter Jackson's trilogy. It's like, that's a little cheap. Um, and then there are some other things that go on there. He also managed to complain at one point about mice under his, under the, the, the floor in his room and it's causing him to lose a lot of sleep, but that's kind of neither here nor there. He ends up going back into his house and he's, oh, talking to the other kid. The other kid's talking about how the Arondir is doing, you know, has some kind of relationship with his mom. He's like, it's a lie, whatever. Well, not really, but whatever. Anyway, Arondir and Bronwyn go off, and they make it to the next village, and it's completely just destroyed. There are no bodies left. It's all burned down and broken up, and they're looking around, and they find this tunnel under this house, and at that point, Arondir's like, I've got to go down in here and figure out what it is. You've got to go back. So Bronwyn goes back. Arondir goes in. Arondir ends up finding... Uh, orcs at the other end of the tunnel tries to get out manages to fall into this area where there's water comes out the other end and is waiting for orcs to pop up but then he gets grabbed from behind and that's where we leave Arondir Bronwyn goes back and she tries to tell all the people in her village you know there's you know something dug a hole over there we've got to get out of here before it gets here because it was also coming in our direction nobody wants to believe her she goes back to her house where Theo has been uh, attacked by an orc because he started to hear mice under the floorboards again. And uh, it turns out it was actually orcs tunneling under, of course. So he, well, we don't see exactly what happens. When Bronwyn gets back, she sees that something has happened in the house and comes in and is trying to figure out where Theo is. And then Theo kind of pokes out of this little cubby hole with a door and, of course, this is another area where the writing seems to me a little weird. Like, why is the house a total mess, and there's no orcs around, and there's no orcs in the village or anything? Theo pops his head out and basically says, run, go get help. And she starts to go leave the house. He just goes back into the cubbyhole. There's no orcs around yet that we can see, but he just decides to just stay there and hide. Which, again, was like, this is the thing that I mentioned earlier that I was going to get to. It makes no sense that he stays in here. She's about to leave, and then she decides instead, I think by this point she's heard a noise, and she decides instead to hide inside a wardrobe, cupboard, whatever it is, and stick around, presumably to make sure that he's okay, rather than leaving him there alone. But again, to me the writing here is just so bad. It's like, why didn't Theo get out and go with her? Why is the house already a mess, but there's not orcs already wandering around doing stuff? Anyway, an orc does pop up. They end up having a fight with it, and this is another fight scene where I think they could have done a better job. They end up killing the orc. 
Theo gets wounded in the process, though. The orc here is super strong, like throwing both of them around like ragdolls strong, which I don't really like. Orcs are not to, not supposed to be super powered. I mean, that's, that's not what they are. Uh, but anyway, they manage to kill it, and then she brings the severed head to the rest of the village people and is like, you believe me now? Uh, so they all are going to get ready to leave. Theo, in the process of getting ready to leave, gets out that black sword again, and while he's holding it, blood from his wound crawls up his arm and goes to the sword, and then it starts, you know, it looks like some black is starting to reform at the end of the broken sword, but we don't get to see that because she inter Bronwyn interrupts and is like, you ready to go? And he says, yep, yeah. and, you know, then they walk off. So that's kind of the, where the major plot threads have taken us so far. So like I said earlier, pretty near 100% fan fiction. Most of it is not directly contradictory to the lore, because like all this stuff in the Southlands, we don't have anything really to, to judge it based on. I mean, we don't have any connections with Numenorians in any part of Middle-earth yet, and we haven't seen anywhere that they necessarily would have been, so that doesn't really come into play yet. We're probably going to get Numenor in Episode 3, uh, but, and there's nothing to contradict the idea that Elrond might have been friends with Durin, or that he might have had some role in kind of being a diplomat between Eregion, although that seems strange. It, we don't get the idea that Celebrimbor needed any help being friends with the dwarves. But, most of the stuff is not absolutely lore-breaking, it's just lots of stuff that's not from the lore, so far. So, there's just a lot of things in this show that the storytelling is mostly okay with some problems. The writing is mostly okay with some problems. Fight scenes so far are not so great. Um, and if they're going to keep having really bad action scenes, then they better keep them to a minimum. But overall, the show, as I mentioned earlier, is enjoyable, but it's just fan fiction. And that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean... The first two episodes didn't take us very far because there's four plot threads to follow, and like I said, the pacing is a little slow. It doesn't, it's not rushing to get anywhere, and I don't have a problem with that, uh, but it's going to have to pick up a little bit because if you're going to keep having really slow stuff, it, it needs to be really, really engaging slow stuff. Uh, but at any rate, I'm looking forward to seeing more of this series just to see where they go with it. Um, and it's entertaining enough on its own terms, but it's, well, I don't know, it, it's just weird. Like, it's enjoyable if you can forget what you know about Tolkien and just watch it and let yourself get immersed in it. It's an enjoyable thing to watch. But if, if you're one of those people who didn't like The Lord of the Rings by Peter Jackson because of the lore type stuff, you're going to hate this. Because there's like nothing out of the lore in this show, and you're just going to be like, why am I watching it? It's not Tolkien, except the names, <laughs> basically. So that is my review of the first two episodes from the fan screening event on August 31st. I will be uploading you know, other reviews as they come out, as quickly as I can get them out. And of course, don't forget again that I have that live stream coming up this weekend. So if y'all really want to get more of my thoughts on this, you can pop in with some super chats there. Or if you're already a... Uh, ring bearer tier patron then you can send me more questions after you've watched this show tonight if i can get this thing uploaded 
hopefully before the end of the day. So uh, all that being said, social links in the description, Discord, and everything else. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer's Ego Voice and One Patron to Rule Them All, and Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour.